You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, my name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you're here in the room with us or you're online, we're really, really glad that you're here. I want to welcome you to Center Church. And I want to let you know something. Um, as a church, our desire is to be a leadership factory, meaning we want to help you discover and develop and deploy your spiritual gifts for the glory of God and for the good of those around you. We want to be a place that empowers you to step into the leadership roles that God has provided you. And I was talking just last week out in the lobby with a young woman at our church who said, hey, I'm about to become the leader of my missional community and become one of the leaders. And this is the first time I've ever held a formal leadership position in the church. And I was like, praise God, praise God, because we want to be a place where whether you are a new Christian or you are a seasoned saint, you are finding ways to use your gifts to lead God's people. And one of the most important leader, leadership positions at our church is what's called an elder or pastor, okay? And all the way back to the early church, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, God has called elder pastors to shepherd his people. That means, man, knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting the people of God so that you will flourish spiritually. And at this point, we have two pastor elders at our church, myself and Pastor Justin, but I'm excited to let you know that for the last 12 months, Justin and I have been walking with three men from our congregation, preparing them as elder candidates, okay? These are guys in our congregation that have, you know, normal vocational jobs. They have families. They have kids. They're already leading in significant ways. We saw the godly character in them that First Timothy talks about. We said, hey, we think God is doing this in you. Would you step into a development process? And it's been 12 months because we take this really, really seriously. In a few weeks, I'm going to get to introduce you to those three elder candidates, and I could not be more excited about doing that. But today, you get to have a little preview of coming attractions as I'm going to invite in just a second Forrest Corey to come and preach from Mark chapter 4. Let me tell you a little bit about Forrest, who is one of our elder candidates. He and his wife, uh, Megan, have roots here in Virginia, but they were living in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where my family and I met them, when God called them to uproot their lives to move from Raleigh to Charlottesville to help us plant Center Church. So they have been here literally since day one. You could say they are OGs of Center Church, okay? That is what they are. And I will be honest with you, we would not be the church we are today without the Corys. Whether it's been Megan and her incredible leadership of our kids ministry that, man, some of, so many of your parent, you parents have benefited from, so many of you volunteers have benefited from, whether it's been Megan and Forrest leading a missional community in uh, kind of the Riverside area, whether it's been them, man, investing in young couples, giving generously of their time and their talent and their treasure, we would not be the church that we are today if it were not for the Corys. And so when I looked at Mark chapter four and I saw what it was about, Forrest immediately came to mind. As a guy in our church who is not perfect, but faithfully does what Mark chapter four calls us to do. And so I thought, man, who better to preach from Mark chapter four to encourage us, to challenge us, to call us to Jesus than Forrest Corey. So let's give a warm center church welcome to my friend, Forrest Corey. <laughs> All right. Well, good afternoon, uh, Center Church. It is just an absolute honor and a pleasure to be with you here today, to be spending time with you. If you're here with us in person or online, we are just thrilled that you are here. Uh, so as Josh said, my name is Forrest, and my wife Megan came up to uh, Charlottesville as part of the original church plant back in July 2018 with my oldest son, Forrest, my daughter, Haven. And uh, we're adding towards the membership or, or count here with our daughter who will be born, baby Noel, here at at uh, the end of August, so getting excited uh, for that. So again, we lived in Raleigh for the previous seven years, and we were members of our sending church, the Summit Church, 
what you need to know about that story is that I only told Josh no two times when he specifically asked me if I'd be willing to come on that church plant and until we heard God's specific call to me to give up what we felt like we had grown and had there in Raleigh to go on that church plant. So uh, it took God's word to uh, make it very clear that's what he had for us. My wife is significantly more important to the operation here at Center Church as our kids ministry director. And, um, <laughs> and, and what that means is I am the de facto assistant to the kids ministry director. For you office fans out there, the assistant to the kids ministry director. I get to serve every uh, single Sunday here in the upper elementary. We are uh, sharing Bible stories from the entirety of the Bible. We're coming up on that three-year full circle all the way through the Bible, which is just an absolute joy and awesome to think about. So my personal story is I'm an old, washed-up, former minor league baseball player, and I am permanently, partially blind in my left eye from a pretty serious baseball injury there um, that happened to me in college. And so in no uncertain terms, it was uh, something that God used. It was the best thing that ever happened to me because God used it to call me out of uh, darkness and idolatry of uh, worshiping at the idol of trying to become a major league baseball player and into the glorious light of him and his kingdom and what he called me to. So we're going to hop in today. I'll open with a question. How many of you have done any actual farming on an actual farm? Show of hands, a couple of folks, maybe. Uh, maybe you have a raised garden in your backyard. You're trying to grow a few uh, plants or some vegetables that you're going to eat sometime later. Maybe you've got a plant that you are desperately trying to keep alive in your apartment. We, we've got a fiddly fig here in our house, and uh, it is clinging to life. I'm not sure what the issue is, but it's still alive today. Amen. Um, and so my wife's family, she, they grew up on, she grew up on an actual farm, and a farmer farms it. And, um, you know, I lived in suburban, grew up in suburban Newport News. I didn't know people actually lived on actual farms still. I don't know that was a thing. I don't know how the food gets the food line. I just know the steak on my plate is delicious. Um, and so every year, we would take one of our family vacations to the farm over the summer, and without fail, uh, Megan's dad, Andrew, would recruit Megan and the kids and Cindy and anybody that was available to help um, uh, farm on this like side plot that they use for like the vegetables and fruits and things that they grow for their, for their own family. And it'll be 97 degrees out, and they're going to be like you know, toiling in the, in the sun with the you know, pulling up weeds and planting seeds and, and, and sweating profusely. And I'm sitting on the golf cart drinking lemonade, thinking to myself, y'all vacation funny. So, so um, as we look at Mark 4, the time that we're spending here in Mark, we see a lot of awesome things happening. Mark is an action-packed gospel. Jesus is in the heart of his ministry. And today we're going to talk about one of his parables where Jesus talks about the sowing of seeds and the types of soil that those seeds fall on it. We'll talk about the four soils first and then circle back to how those soils got there in the first place. But before we do that, we're actually going to hop in right to the middle and look at um, the middle after Jesus explains or says the parable. And before he explains it, uh, the, uh, the apostles, the disciples there are a little bit confused. And Jesus explains to them how the parables work. He says in verse 11, as he just told them the parable, that to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 when he says, they will see but not perceive and hear but not understand as he described the hard-heartedness of Israel. And so I think that's significant as we want to pause here and let that sink in, that the, um, those that are outside of the family of God will not have the same understanding or potentially any understanding of what Christ is saying and what he means as contrasted with those 
those that are part of the kingdom of God. And so for me, I can kind of relate to that in my own childhood. And I went to a Methodist church and knew all of the Bible stories. And I knew exactly what the gospel said, but there was no uh, change of heart or response. It was all sort of ritualistic. And instead, we want to recognize that it requires a miraculous change of heart that only God can perform to make you and I a part of his kingdom. And so there's a significant weight to the parables that Jesus is using because of those implications for those that are part of the family of God and those that are apart. And so, um, like I said, when we hop in here, we see the apostles are initially confused by the parable that Jesus said. And thankfully for this one, Jesus takes the time to specifically explain the meaning of the parables and to the apostles, to the disciples there. And again, in the end, what we want to recognize is that the best commentary that we can read on a certain piece of scripture is the one that's dictated by the subject matter himself, of course, Jesus. So very glad that he explains it. So like I said, we're going to go a little out of order. We're going to look at the four soils first, then we'll circle back to uh, the seeds and how they got there in the first place. So hopping right in, we want to look uh, at our own lives as other lives as others and the implications it has. In uh, verse four, it says, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear Satan immediately takes away the word that is sown in them. And so these are people who do not appear to have any interest in pursuing the Lord. Maybe you've shared your faith with them, a testimony, you've you know, invited them to church for a thousand times, and they just don't engage. There's, there's no understanding or interest of, of any kind. And that is because we hear that Satan is real, and he will stop at nothing to prevent a non-believer from believing and hearing the word. It is ultimately spiritual warfare. He will distract, deceive, misdirect to prevent someone from giving the word any attention or giving that seed any opportunity to take root because it never actually finds any soil. So a great personification of this truth is the Screw Tape Letters, a novel by C.S. Lewis, where in the novel, in case you uh, haven't read it, Screwtape is a veteran demon, and he is, advises his nephew, a younger demon, about the various techniques that he's used to win souls to hell over the year because Wormwood is tasked with orchestrating the downfall of a human called the patient. And Screwtape uh, walks him through a host of different strategies that he's using, you know, things like sexual temptation and family conflict to internal cowardice and vulnerability. And so what we see here is for those that hear the word but do not give it any attention, it is important that we as followers of Christ recognize that Satan and his demons are actively working in distracting the potential followers to truly engage. And so if you're here today, and maybe you feel like that's you, that you've tried and you just don't feel like it's connected, I just want to encourage you to continue to pray, to ask for God to reveal himself and persevere in your pursuit of the Lord. Because ultimately, in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, Jesus specifically states, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So you can do that by continuing to pray, by reading his word, by spending time with his community of believers, be it here at Center Church or other faithful gospel-believing churches, not as a means or a checklist of ways to make yourself right with God, but as a way to uh, engage and connect with the almighty creator himself. So again, that first soil, we see the seed falls, but there's just no engagement. There's no root and Satan literally plucks it away. The second soil, here we go, let me switch it up, look at that, on the fly. So the second soil 
we see in verse 5 is other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And then Jesus goes on to explain in verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately hear it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulations or persecutions arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so there's a lot of different reasons why this can be the response uh, for someone in your own personal experience or as you've shared. And many times it boils down to pursuing God because of what you can gain from God rather than God himself. So, for example, you like the idea of forgiveness of your sins, and so you sort of walk the walk and do the things that, um, you know, a good Christian does, um, you know, just so that you can feel guilty, uh, less guilty, excuse me, about your mistakes, but only so long as it doesn't interfere with the things that you truly vowed or hold more important. And this could be the ability to progress your career. It could be to gain the affection of a boyfriend or girlfriend or to afford the size house, brand of clothes, or type of car that your non-Christian peers seem to have. For me, when I was a teenager, I really just wanted everybody to think that I was kind of the best at, at literally everything. So, so to my teachers, I wanted them to think I was a great student and I had studied really hard, and so I made sure that they knew how long I had worked on a certain project uh, you know, so that they liked me. To my, my baseball coaches, I wanted them to think that I was the hardest worker and best athlete, and so I did these things so that they would think a certain way positively about me. I really valued their you know, affections in a sense or, or adoration. You know, to my mom and dad who raised me you know, in the church, I knew they wanted me to be a good Christian, and so... Um, I went to the youth group activities, went to church kind of because I had to, and then did all of the different things um, that I needed to do to be kind of right with God, and then figured that was what was needed to basically be saved. Again, this is sort of theology, again, uh, according to a really, really confused 16-year-old boy. I don't recommend emulating that. Uh, and again, this was all fine and well. Things were going great right up until the point when I realized it wasn't cool to be super involved in uh, the local church or in church at all to my baseball teammates or my friends at school and that kind of thing. Thing. So I convinced myself that I couldn't relate to him, and I didn't like to teach uh, the, the youth group leader and all of those different things. And what we really see here is I value the adoration and acceptance of my friends more than pursuing the Lord and for building the relationships in the church. I wasn't willing to sacrifice my popularity because I had an insufficient and incomplete view of God's love for me and my need for him. So um, for some of you, this could make itself sort of on the other opposite end of the spectrum when you encounter trials in your life. We see that seed does um, find soil and begin to bear fruit, but when um, bad things happen, maybe you lose a job or maybe your parents get divorced or something else happens that you truly were looking for and were not expecting, but then instead of putting your trust and faithfulness in God to see you through that, perhaps you gain, uh, blame God for the bad thing that happens and then ultimately fall away. So for me, on the uh, flip side of this sort of equation, we look at when I was in my mid-20s, I was saved, and I experienced a, a solid season of consistent, albeit slow and sort of clumsy, spiritual growth, especially in those first seven years where uh, we spent growing and learning, my wife and I, in, in the Summit Church. And we felt like we were faithfully pursuing the Lord, and he blessed it. We had had two kids. We paid off our house. We had many things that we recognized as God's faithfulness and blessings, but because we had it positioned in a way that God was blessing us, 
us when we were called to, uh, to come to Charlottesville to sell our home and to give up our church community, to give up our local community. And again, after telling no to Josh twice, when, when God called us, we were willing to, to give that up. I was willing to sacrifice that piece of it to, to pursue what we felt God was calling us to. So again, that second soil, we see the seed does take root, but then as it springs up, the sort of opportunities and trials and tribulations prevent it from persevering and pursuing. So the third soil we see in verse 7 is kind of the opposite of, of that, but there are some parallels to both of these two soils. We see verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And then Jesus explains verse 18, which is kind of the opposite of verse 16. You know, instead of trials, this person hears word, the, the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and prove it unfruitful. So Jesus specifically names cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desires of other things as the main culprits capable of choking out uh, the word. So instead of trials, more often than not, these are those good things in life that grow so great in importance in our lives that they start to be more important than God. And so this is ultimately the definition of idolatry. We idolize something so great. And what we want to recognize, frankly, is that all sin is idolatry. Another way that we, we say it is that when we take a good thing that isn't God and we make it a, uh, a God thing, and then uh, we take a desire in our lives and we make it a demand. So this situation is especially challenging for this uh, kind of casual, cultural, uh, you know, semi-post-Christian modern world that we live in that's super confused and it's the typical American life and you've got two and a half kids, you just bought a new car and your kid just started playing travel soccer, right? And then things are going really, really well, but your calendar is full and your budget is locked up with all of these things. And so these things, again, they're good things, but if we're not careful, they begin to take the place of the mission we are called to in Christ. And when this happens, happens, they become sinful. So Francis Chan is a well-known uh, Christian author and pastor and provides a great example of this truth when he preached uh, a message on the same, uh, uh, the same passage, right? So he actually takes the physical Bible and he puts it on the ground. We don't do uh, props here at Center Church, but he's taken a, <laughs> a Bible and puts it on the ground. And then he actually takes um, like clothes and throws it on the Bible. And then he actually takes dollar bills and, and covers it. And I think he even uses like a toy car or something. And then the idea is that literally the word of the Lord representing what God is calling us to and telling us that we should be doing is completely covered and unable to see the light of day in a sense, right? And, and I think we can kind of relate, you know, so the, the world here, the cares of the world, the world is unrelenting, and it will take every ounce of attention that you give it and leave nothing more than a few fleeting minutes of gratification, right? So that new car that you just bought will be dirty and old in a few short months, especially if you have kids or in, <laughs> in social media and those posts that you get in one to see how many likes you have that lasts for more than a, less than a couple of seconds right until you're thinking about the next way to get a couple of likes and so the greatest danger here is the more worldly success we achieve the more inclined we are to believe that we are self-sufficient and therefore not willing to sacrifice when the lord calls us to obedience and so um when i think about that from from the the one side we see our calendars are full and our budgets are tight and so we are unable to prioritize and obey when god calls us to those things but on the other side i'm reminded of my 
my friends, Matt and Catherine, again from the Summit Church. Matt had a great job. He was on staff at the Summit Church. They had, you know, the three kids and um, a good neighborhood and all of those things. But they felt the specific call to go to Africa, Malawi, actually, to be missionaries. And to do that, that meant that, of course, Matt was going to give up his job. They had to sell a bunch of their profession. They literally gave away the family dog so that they could then go and be obedient to the call to be a missionary in Africa. And, of course, I want to clarify, we're not all called to be missionaries in Africa, but we all are called to sacrifice and deprioritize other things so that we can prioritize what God is calling us to. And so we have to be willing to make that sacrifice because in the end we see where Christ calls us to store up our treasures. Matthew 6, do not lay up yourselves for treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves can uh, break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. And he concludes with one that we're familiar with for where your treasure is your heart will be also so again that third soil if you see is sort of a contrast to the second soil where there's opportunity there for the word to take root but then here the cares of the world take that away verse eight is our first soil fourth soil excuse me and that's where we see the seed take root other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30 60 and 100 full and so there's a lot happening here right the entirety of the divine mystery of salvation in a couple of words which is incredible and, and you may ask yourself right here you know why doesn't all of the seed bear fruit why do some but others don't and honestly we just have to recognize that scripture does not clarify or explain that we know that God is sovereign and we know that his well will is perfect and so we have to put Put our trust in that detail when thinking about how some bear fruit and others do not. Verse 20, he explains it pretty quickly that those uh, were sown on the good soil are the ones that hear the word, accept it, and then bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So that second comma has the entirety of the miracle of salvation that is accomplished by our almighty Father God. So I'm not going to try to unpack the entire doctrine of election here. The point I want to drive home is that we're called to share the gospel, and the hearer must act and engage with what's being said. So you sort of heard that phrase, that, you know, the gospel call is only made effective through the saving grace and miraculous heart change granted by God. And so Wayne Grudem, in his book literally called Bible Doctrine, describes it as a kind of summons from the king of the universe that has such power that it brings about the response that is asked for in people's heart. And then in Romans 8.30, Paul connects the dots for us where he says, those whom he predestined, he also called, and for those whom he called, he also justified. So for further discussion on the doctrine of election, Pastor Josh and Pastor Justin would love to field all your calls and all of your emails, direct them to him. For us, we see the heart change has occurred. For the followers of Christ, they will begin to bear fruit, small at first and then increasing throughout their spiritual journey. For me, I can relate again. So that same thing, saved in uh, my mid-20s and started to pursue those godly endeavors out of a response to the gospel, right? To learn more from his word, reading scripture, attending church, serving at church, those kinds of things. It was clumsy at first. It was inconsistent at first. And it's still not exactly as consistent as we'd all like it to be, right? And in and, and, and God's great providence and in his unwavering patience, he continued to reveal himself to me as I continue to put uh, my trust in him. And so the best way that I can and describe it as sort of a repositioning of my heart rather than you know pursuing the things I wanted to pursue and then sort of figuring out where I could fit God in somewhere it was pursuing God first and then everything else happening secondary uh, and secondary importance to what God was calling me to so we see in that fourth soil that it finds good soil it be, takes root and then you begin to bear fruit 
So we have the four soils, so let's circle back and look at how those seeds got there in the first place. Verse 3, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, the seed fell everywhere. Verse 14, Jesus simply states that the sower sows the word. And so right out of the gate, we initially recognize the sower is Christ himself. Matthew 13, 37, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So pretty straightforward there, but we do see that, right? Jesus is in the heart of his earthly ministry. He is uh, you know, doing ton- telling tons of parables. He's performing physical healing mysteries. There's claims of his uh, actual divinity to the Pharisees and many other things that show Jesus sowing those seeds. But the implication is, as followers of Christ, we are also called to be sowers of the word. And the best way to look at this really is the Great Commission there in Matthew 26, where he says clearly, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded to you. And then uh, we see later on in Romans, again, Paul thankfully clarifies further and asks rhetorically, How can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Well, Center Church, unless this needs to be reiterated any uh, further than Paul and Jesus, here's me for saying to you this. If you are a follower of Christ, you are called to be a sower of the word. That's why we conclude every service here with go and make disciples. Uh, our sending church, uh, the Summit Church, was even less creative. They literally sent you, said, you are sent. So <laughs> you're sent to go and make disciples is the application there, right? But it's pretty good as a sort of drumbeat, a heartbeat by which that we uh, sort of march to. And when we think about this practically, we want to look for places to do this where we work, eat, live, and play. So again, it's important to stop a second and recognize Mark's not saying we're called to save the lost or that we are somehow responsible for the salvation of others. By contrast, the actual farming term, sowing of seeds, is throwing seed all over the ground with little to no regard where the seed actually falls, but in full faith and confidence that some seed will find good soil and bear fruit in much the same way we trust that God will uh, have those bear fruit that he is calling. So, Making it practical, what does this mean if we are present-day followers of Christ? So at Center Church, we like to think about how we can live explicitly Christian, but highly relational. So explicitly Christian, following what the Bible tells us about the world and how we are to live, but looking for the opportunities to grow relationships with those in the communities where we live. So what this means is every person you come in contact with is an opportunity to sow a seed. So your neighbor, your friends, the barista at Starbucks, or the guy that you sit next to on a plane to Charlotte who proceeds to tell you that his marriage is in shambles and he doesn't know what to do, and then you share the word with him, pray with him as you land into Charlotte International. Hypothetical. No, that happened. So, um, so, so, so we see these opportunities, and I do want to clarify for you extroverts out there. That probably means knowing all the baristas in, uh, you know, Charlottesville, and really high output, lots of types ways that we can do that. But if you're on the more introverted side, that might be something as simple as learning the neighbor of your, uh, learning the name of your neighbor whom you haven't met yet. So it looks a little bit different. That's okay. We just want to see and look for and ask God to show us those opportunities to do that exact thing to look for the ways to sow seeds. So what this also means is it means you share the gospel and it is necessary to use words. 
Now, I'm purposely misquoting that St. Francis of Assisi's quote, which I think is a misquote also, but if necessary, use words. Um, and so, of course, there are many, many faithful ways that you can sow seeds without using words, right? And I've seen and heard so many awesome examples of how many of you are doing exactly that, building relationships with those that are different from you, socially, racially, economically, all of the above, meeting physical needs of the people that have those needs. All of those things are perfect examples. Keep doing them. Those are good. Right, but what I am saying is that specifically using words is uh, to sow seeds is an area of obedience and faithfulness that I think many of us need to grow into. It means stepping into opportunities to verbally communicate the truths that we believe. So again, making it a, a, a little practical here, we want to think about the ways to do that. One great way to do it is to share your testimony. It's really good because it's really hard for someone to disagree with you about what you're telling them that you have experienced, right? So God has done this in my life, and it's really helpful to talk about how you were before Christ saved you and now how your life is different after God saves you. And another little practical tip is if you've never actually shared your testimony, uh, get with your DNA group or your MC or your MC leader and practice doing that. The more comfortable we are with that story, the more likely we're going to be to step into those opportunities that God presents for us to share our testimony and what God has done in our own life. So another way to do this is to tell people why you, can, why you can't join them for Ultimate Frisbee on Sunday afternoon. And of course, what I mean by that is hopefully you're here with us worshiping and spending time in church or whatever church you go to. And again, I'm being a little bit funny here, but what I mean is just a simple way to talk about the things that you prioritize with your time or with your talents or what you do that glorifies the Lord rather than something else. You're not judging the other person. You're not saying anything like that. It's just another simple way to acknowledge and verbalize what you believe and hold to be true. On the far other end of that spectrum is our third opportunity, and that means to reference your biblical worldview when discussing hot-button topics with your neighbors and friends. Now, carefully, <laughs> respectfully, politely, and not on Facebook, right? <laughs> like, whatever you do, not on Facebook. Uh, but the point being that you want to be able to speak into what a biblical worldview looks like in contrast to what the world is telling us is true about any number of things, immigration and recon racial reconciliation, all of those things the world has an opinion on, and so does the Bible. And we want to be able to speak intellectually into that. You don't have to know every nuance of every single hot-button topic to do this, but the better prepared we are, the better that that will go. One of the tips that I use, I really like The Briefing. It's a podcast by Albert Moeller, a really solid theologian, and I don't know what time that dude wakes up, but by 5 a.m., maybe 6, every single day, he has got a news report that's communicated and then explained how it relates to our Christian worldview. So I highly recommend it. It's just a great way to just educate yourself a little bit so that as we pray for God, to God to give us these opportunities, we're able to step into them with confidence. Finally, the fourth one is to be, explain the truth of the gospel in a formal gospel presentation. So similar to your testimony, but this one requires a little bit more nuance, I think. So yes, it can come out of an organic conversation that you're having with your neighbor and friend, and again, I encourage you to step into that. But as Pastor Justin, I think, really accurately uh, recommends, setting up that gospel appointment, as he calls it, is a really better way to set that expectation and say, hey, I really have enjoyed getting to know you, friend, but I would love to tell you a little bit more about what Christ has done for me, but also what that means for you. And that's the switch there from your testimony, as you're saying the gospel has an opinion and has a, a statement that I would like you to consider, right? So sort of the same thought with your DNA group or your MC or MC leader. Spend time, go around the room, practice giving uh, your testimony, practice also sharing the gospel. So sidebar, shameless plug, if you're not in a DNA group or in an MC, me, Pastor Josh, Pastor Judd, would love to get you connected. It is a great tool to, as a smaller, uh, more relational community of believers, can help 
each other pursue the gospel um, faithfully and more effectively. Again, I'm not suggesting that God can't use any of our clumsy uh, explanations of the gospel, but again, the more confident and comfortable we are, the more likely we will be to step into those opportunities. So, I know. That list just probably caused a little bit of discomfort and anxiety for some of you, and maybe you're already on reason number 14 why you can't, shouldn't, or won't be able to do any of those things. And listen, I get it. I am an extreme extrovert, and I still get nervous when I'm doing something as simple as texting my buddy to see if he'd like to come to church. I'm loud, and I am boisterous, and my favorite pastimes are going on really extreme adventures and then sitting around the solo stove in my driveway telling my 10 closest friends about that journey. In fact, it doesn't even have to be that uh, adventurous or epic. I once told the story of how my my son negotiated the price of catching gear at Play It Again Sports as if he had balanced the national budget. So the point is, even in uh, my extrovertedness, I still get that feeling in this pit of my stomach when I'm about to share my testimony or ask uh, a neighbor or friend what they feel or believe about the gospel. And so if that is you and you're here, what I will say is that the good news of the gospel is worth it. When uh, we talked with Matt and Catherine about what it looked like for them to step into that obedience to go to Africa, that was their explanation. They said, Jesus is worth it. The almighty creator of the universe loved us all so much that he sent his son to live that life that we could not live and die a death that we deserved so that we could be saved. He died in the most gruesome way possible. And what do we know, church, is that he did not stay dead, but he rose again in three days. Amen. And so, Senator Church, if you are a follower of Christ, you are assured of that eternity because of what Christ did. And out of a response to that incredible news of what Christ suffered for us, Surely we can endure some discomfort of our own in obedience to that call that have been commanded to go and to make disciples to be a sower of the word. And if you're here today and uh, you're not a follower of Christ, I hope you hear this good news. And I hope you hear it in a new way or for the first time because Christ died for you as well. He died for his entire creation because we are all separated from him in sin and in need of a savior. And so if you have never professed you know, your faith in uh, your own faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to consider doing that. It isn't complicated and there's nothing magical words that you have to say, but the way to think about that is praying to God something as simple as, God, I know there is nothing that I can do to make you love me more and nothing I have done to make you love me any less. And I give my life to you. And where you tell me to go, I will go. And where you tell me to do, I will do. So, Center Church, if you are ready to be a sower of the word, we are here to sow right along with you. And we know that we sow seed because Jesus was sown for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We give you the glory for all of the beautiful things that you did and how you sent your son, Jesus, to save each and every one of us. And Lord, we pray that we would step in with confidence and boldness to be sowers of the word, to share the good news of your gospel, Lord, and that you would be mighty to save for those that that salvation is yours and yours alone. And Lord, we pray that in our efforts, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.